All right, good morning. Hope everyone's doing well. Uh, we are now in our fifth week in our Messages in the Miracle series, where we're looking at Jesus' miraculous signs in the Gospel of John. And as was mentioned earlier, this week we're looking at uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which interestingly just happens to be the only miracle besides the resurrection uh, that shows up in all four Gospels. Every Gospel has, has this story in some form. Um, now, I want to help us to put ourselves in this story as we read it. So I want us to imagine that we are going to a sold-out basketball game at Gample Pavilion. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Gample Pavilion is the athletic stadium at UConn, just down the road from here where the Huskies play. And Gample Pavilion's maximum capacity is 10,167 people. Now you might think, oh, okay, well, you know, Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people, so he fed about half of Gample Pavilion. That's, that's really impressive. Uh, but that's actually not entirely accurate because in those days, when the size of a crowd was described, only the men were counted. I know, that's not fair, that's stupid, but that's, that's just the way it was. Uh, in fact, when this story is told in the Gospel of Matthew, it, it lets us know this very clearly. It says, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So besides women and children, women and children ate as well, but they weren't included in that 5,000 number. So most scholars estimate that the number of people that Jesus actually fed was probably somewhere between 15 and 20,000. Now, I don't know where they get that exactly. They must be presuming that there were a lot more women and children there than men. Um, but estimates are up to 15 to 20,000. Uh, now... If you look at the high range of that estimate, that's actually about two Gample pavilions, right? So it's a lot of people. Now, <clears throat> for the sake of us envisioning this miracle, I'm going to say, let's lowball the estimate. Let's just double the size of the crowd from 5,000 to 10,000. So the number of people that Jesus fed, we're going to envision, is about the size of Gample pavilion, a sold-out night at Gample pavilion, which is a lot of people. Uh, you know, imagine if you were at Gample Pavilion and someone said to you, you know, after this is over, you're going to need to feed everybody here. Feel like a pretty outrageous request. Well, with that vision in mind, let's look at the story. Uh, this is John 6, starting in verse 1. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, uh, turn to there, John 6, starting in verse 1. And I'll say a quick prayer to get us started. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this opportunity to look at one of your miraculous signs. And Lord, we, we want to hear from you. Uh, we want to trust that when we look at your word, there's things we can learn, and there's uh, power in it to affect our lives. And so God, I just pray that you would give us insight as we look at this. Uh, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive whatever it is you want to tell us. And uh, we pray that you would work, Lord. We pray that you would impress on our hearts uh, truth in a way that goes beyond what words in their own power can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, 
that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not, be, would not buy enough bread for each one to have one bite. I can really sympathize with what Philip is saying here because as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, my fiancé and I are in the process of planning a wedding and, well, more so my fiancé than me, uh, but part of that involves figuring out how to feed about 200 people in a cost-effective way. A while ago, we were talking to one caterer and he came back with an estimate. He said, oh, about $125 a plate. And we said, no thanks, because my reaction was a lot like uh, Phillips. That's a year's wages, right? And <laughs> wedding food, obviously, is more expensive than bread, right? But we're talking about feeding 200 people. 10,000 10, people is a lot more than 200 people. So the cost of feeding that many people, even if you're just giving bread, uh, had to be tremendous. So Philip's reaction makes a lot of sense to me. That's a, a very reasonable response. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So for comparison, imagine you're in Gamble Pavilion and somebody says, okay, we need to feed everybody here. This is your responsibility. You've got to take care of this. And you say... Well, I have five slices of pizza and two of those soft pretzels. Um, that's all I got. Well, I know that if I was in that situation, I would be, I would be embarrassed to even offer that. Right? I, would, I would probably just say, I, I'm, I can't do it. You know. Well, here's what happens next. Uh, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. So by a miracle, Jesus is able to take your five slices of pizza and your two soft pretzels and distribute some to everyone in Gample Pavilion. And this is not because he is super skilled at breaking your slices of pizza into embarrassingly small pieces, okay? It says next, when they had all had enough to eat, when they all had enough, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So not only has everyone in Gample had enough to eat, uh, there's actually way more pizza and pretzels left over than what you started with at the end. Pretty amazing. And we're, you know, we're told that there were 12 baskets of food left over. And you know, people will debate, oh, what's it mean that there were 12 baskets left over? Well, here's what I think it means. There was 12 baskets of food left over. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really think we need a meaning 
beyond the surface meaning. I mean, it is kind of neat to think there was so much left over that each disciple could take his own basket you know, home with him if he wanted to. But the point here is that Jesus hasn't just provided. Jesus has provided in abundance. Um, now, I see two categories of messages in this miracle. The first category is this miracle says something about how Jesus can work through us. This has to do with, with us. Okay? The other category of message in this miracle is who Jesus is. Okay, what, what Jesus can do, what he's come to do, who, who his identity is. So we'll, we'll start with that first category there. Uh, and I mentioned this when we, we prayed uh, for the Yukon students in their spring break. What I see here is that this miracle tells us, if you're taking notes, this is point number one in your outlines, that Jesus can multiply our small offerings. Jesus can multiply our small offerings. The boy in this story, he does not have much to offer. Just five barley loaves, two fish. And as I said already, if I were asked to provide food for everybody in Gamble Pavilion and all I had was five slices of pizza and two soft pretzels, I would be embarrassed to offer that. I'd be so embarrassed because it seems like such a meager offering that I don't think I would even, I would even bring myself to offer it. This situation actually reminds me of a story from seminary. So when I was in seminary, we had these assignments that we had to do called translation notebooks, where you, you, on each page of this assignment, you would have to type this up. You would type the verse in the original Greek, and then you would type your translation of it into the English. And then the, on the rest of the page, you had to explain why you had made the translation decisions that you had made. So one verse would be a full type page. And then over the course of the semester, you were supposed to translate about 130 verses. So at the end of the semester, you were supposed to hand in a document that was 130 pages long. It's a lot, right? Well, I had a good friend who accidentally deleted his entire translation notebook off his computer right before it was supposed to be handed in. And he realized that he had done this an hour before it was due. So what he did, and I'm terrible that I'm laughing about this, but <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sad, but this is the part of the story that's funny to me, is that he then proceeded to take the next hour to get as much of it done as he could so that he still had something to hand in, which ended up being one verse. So when he went to hand in a document that was supposed to be 130 pages long, it was just one page. And now, to be clear, I think that my friend did the noble thing in trying to hand in something rather than nothing. But if I were him, I would just be embarrassed, so embarrassed to just hand in one page. I would find that more embarrassing than doing nothing because there's just something so awkward and humiliating about offering something that falls so far short of what's expected. And I have to imagine that that must have been how it felt to just offer you know, that little food for that many people. It would feel too embarrassing to even be worth it. But this story challenges us to reject the attitude that says, I'm too embarrassed to make a small offering. Because it shows us that Jesus can take a little and do a lot. 
Okay, he, can, he can take our small offering and multiply it way beyond whatever we would imagine. So whatever offering it is that you have to give, you know, whether that offering is time or money or some kind of work that you can do, just don't assume just because you have a little bit of time or money or work to offer that it's not worth offering and that God can't use it in a really powerful way. You know, so let's think of some examples. You might think, I'm so busy, I have no time, I don't have the time to go visit that lonely neighbor or to call up that elderly relative. But you have to realize that even if you just have 15 spare minutes of time, God can take that 15 spare minutes and do something ministering to that other person that that you would be totally surprised how much can happen, you know, just in that little amount of time. It's possible for God to do in 15 minutes what you might think would take three hours to accomplish if we're willing to give that offering uh, to offer what we have. You know, similarly, you might think, I don't have the time to read the Bible or pray. I'm just, I'm just too busy. But again, if you just have 15 minutes that you offer to the Lord, where you say, I'm going to focus on you right now, I'm going to spend this time in prayer, even though it's hard for me, God can multiply that 15 minutes throughout your day. You know, that 15 minutes can set the tone for your entire day. It can change your attitude. Your attitude affects your behavior, and your behavior affects everything. God can can multiply that. You know, you also might think, I don't have enough money to make a worthwhile offering to the church or, um, you know, to, to missions or to feeding the hungry or whatever charitable cause it might be. But again, if, you know, if everybody gives a little something, it eventually amounts to a substantial something. If, er- if everybody gives nothing, then it just ends up being nothing. So even if you only have a little bit to offer, don't let that discourage you from making the offering. You know, if Jesus can feed 10,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish, he can do a lot with your 15 minutes or with your $5, you know, if we're willing to make that small offering. All right, I said that the second category of, of message in this miracle is what this miracle says about who Jesus is. Well, in order to really appreciate this, we have to pay attention to a small detail that's easy to miss. Verse 4 said, the Jewish Passover feast was near. Now, why does that matter? That matters because it means that the, the Jews at this time would have been remembering and celebrating events from the life of Moses. That's what it would have been in the forefront of their minds. If, if you know much about the story of the life of Moses, you know that Moses was the one that was called to help lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and that's when God miraculously parted the Red Sea and they walked through it as they came out of slavery. But the part of the story that we often forget is that after he, they were set free from slavery, they went on and spent many years wandering in the desert. And during that time when they were wandering, God miraculously provided for their needs by uh, making the stuff that they called manna appear in the, uh, in the morning on the ground, like frost. And it was something that, that they could eat every day. He provided this manna. And, and this manna was thought of as bread from heaven. And so when Jesus miraculously feeds all these people around the same time as Passover, they would be thinking, hey, 
This is a lot like the time when God provided manna to our ancestors in the desert. This is a lot like what we celebrate and remember at this time of year. Well, what happened in the past is, in a sense, happening again. Bread is coming from heaven. So a second message in this miracle is Jesus is the same God who provided the manna in the desert. You know, one of the things that's easy for us as modern readers of the Bible to miss is that there's so much symbolism and power in what Jesus says if you're a first century Jew. You know, if you have all that history in your mind. There's a lot of it that we can miss now, but I think it's important for us to see that because it really adds to how beautiful and how complex and, and uh, this, we're able to see this remarkable tapestry that God is putting together when we notice these things. So Jesus is the same God who provided the manna in the desert. But there's actually more to what Jesus is saying here about himself. It goes deeper than this. Now, usually when Jesus does a miracle, he kind of leaves us to, to figure out exactly what he's trying to communicate through the miracle. But this miracle is special because this time around, a little bit later in this same chapter, Jesus says some things that help us to interpret the miracle. So what he says in verse 35 is, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying, I don't want you to think of me just as the one who provides bread. Okay, I want you to realize that I am the bread itself. I'm not just the giver of manna from, from heaven. I am the manna from heaven. And what I just did there when I fed 10,000 people, that was a sign of this, this truth, that I am the bread from heaven. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, what does it mean for Jesus to be bread well, in order to, to really appreciate that, we have to recognize that bread was the essential staple of a diet in those days. They didn't eat a lot of meat. Uh, bread was the go-to food. It was a, a rough world if you were gluten intolerant. But yeah, bread was the food. And so when Jesus says, I'm the bread of heaven, it's like he's saying, I am food. Okay? Bread is synonymous with food. Now, it's very important for us to recognize that Jesus is not saying that we should be literally, physically eating him. That would be gross and not glorifying to God at all. And I, I can't imagine how that would have any positive effects on our spiritual condition, to literally eat somebody's flesh and blood. What Jesus is doing here is he is using a physical concept to express a spiritual truth. Using a physical concept to express a spiritual truth. And this is actually something that Jesus does throughout the book of John. And there's a reoccurring theme that Jesus does this and people don't understand him. People can't see past the physical to the spiritual reality that the physical is supposed to be pointing to. They just get hung up on the physical thing itself. So let me give a couple examples. In John 3, uh, Jesus talks to uh, a man named Nicodemus, and he tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again. That's a physical concept being used to express a spiritual truth.
But Nicodemus can't understand what that could mean spiritually. He's just thinking about it in physical terms. So he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, he's right to say that, right? He, he, he understands that physically this doesn't make any sense, but he can't understand what it means past the physical. He can't grasp the spiritual concept behind the physical. And then a similar thing happens in John 4 when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, he tells her, I have living water. And she, rather than taking that as spiritual, says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Right? So she doesn't realize that Jesus isn't talking about physical water. He's talking about something spiritually. He's, he's using physical concept to express a spiritual truth. And so when Jesus says that he is food for us, we need to recognize that he's speaking the same way as when he says you need to be born again or I have living water for you. He's using this physical concept to express a spiritual truth. So, in this case, the physical concept is Jesus is food. So, what is the spiritual truth that is being expressed by that? I don't think it's too hard to figure out. I think what he's saying is we need Jesus for our souls to be nourished. We need Jesus for our souls to be nourished. So, this is how I would put it. This is uh, message in the miracle number three. Our souls need to have a relationship to Jesus the way our bodies do to food. Our souls need to have a relationship to Jesus the way our bodies do to food. So what does that mean? Well, for one thing, food is essential, right? It's absolutely essential. Um, <laughs> what he's saying is you need to think about me the same way you do about food. Now, how do we think about food? We think that we need it every single day. If we have a meeting after church, and we know that it's going to go an hour or two, we feel morally obligated to provide everybody with food, right? Because even if you ate before church, we recognize, well, people are probably going to be hungry by the time service is over. And we feel like, well, we must provide food for that reason, because we recognize that food is essential. And so likewise, we should see Jesus as absolutely essential for our souls, right? If we don't have the perspective that he gives us, if we don't have the wisdom that he gives us, if we don't have his love, if we don't have his sacrifice on our behalf, if we don't have any of those things, then our souls are going to be starved. And just as if we don't have food for a long enough period of time, when we don't have the things that Jesus gives us, we die. Our souls die. Okay, so Jesus is just as essential to us as food is. But another parallel between Jesus and food is, is this. Eating food has to be a repeated activity. Right? It's not a one-time thing, eating food. It's like Jerry Seinfeld says, even if you ruin an appetite, there's another one coming right behind it. <laughs> you got to... You got to eat food over and over again. And the same is true with Jesus, the bread of heaven. Uh, we can't just go to church once or pray once or read the Bible once and expect to feel spiritually nourished. Okay, we, we have to go to Jesus regularly. Sometimes what happens is we try to live off of some spiritual high from years ago, and that never works. I mean, 
as great as that experience may have, have been, we need more than just bread from the past. Okay, we need bread in the present. We need fresh encounters with Jesus. Anyone who's ever worked with kids in a youth group knows that this is a, this is a pattern. Um, kids will go on some retreat or a conference. I mean, this happens to adults too, but I, I notice it's especially prominent with, with younger younger people, kids will go on a retreat or a conference and often they'll have a powerful experience with God. You know, they will taste the bread of heaven and it tastes good and they come home and they're fired up and they're excited to live the Christian life. But a lot of the time they don't know how to feed off of Jesus in the day to day. And so after a few weeks or months pass, they often find themselves back in the same negative patterns that they had uh, before that retreat or that, that conference, and they find that their, their passion is gone. And the reason is because their souls, well, all of our souls, can't thrive on just a memory. You know, just like our bodies can't thrive on the memory of food. You don't go, oh, I was hungry, but then I remembered that pizza that I ate last week, and I, I felt all better. <laughs> It doesn't work that way. Okay, we need these regular experiences of God's love and his wisdom in order to stay healthy. Finally, the last message that I see in this miracle is Jesus wants to satisfy us. Jesus wants to satisfy us. You know, remember, the story told us that no one got shortchanged. Right? There was enough food for everyone. Everyone ate until they had had enough. And then not only that, there was a whole bunch left over. So what this miracle is telling us is that Jesus is able to satisfy us. He is able to meet our needs and then some. Now, Jesus does care about our physical needs. And I think this story does show that. But that's, that's not really the heart of what this story is about. Remember, Jesus uses physical concepts to express spiritual truths. It's a pattern throughout, throughout the gospel. So when he says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty, he's not saying, oh, if you believe in me, you'll never experience the effects of a famine or a drought. You know? he's, not, he's not saying that. What he's saying is that he can feed our souls. And what he's saying is that he can satisfy the longings of our souls in a way that nothing else ever has the ability to do. We all have desires that food and drink can't satisfy. You know, Jesus said, man cannot live on bread alone. That is a very true statement. Okay, we... We are not satisfied in life simply by having our immediate physical needs met. Those things are incredibly important, okay? But, but we have desires for so much more, right? We have a desire for love. We have a desire for purpose. We have a desire for meaning. We have a desire for beauty. We have a desire for wisdom. We have a desire for peace. And we have a desire for eternal life. And what Jesus is saying through this miracle is that he is able to satisfy the desires that we have for those things. And he's able to provide in abundance. We just have to come to him and we have to believe in him. When I was at UConn, I minored in religion. 
and I remember learning about Buddhism. And I remember I was struck by a very significant difference between Buddhism and Christianity. You may have heard that Buddhism doesn't really acknowledge God uh, in, in any respect. It's not a theistic re uh, religion, and that is true. But the difference I'm thinking of is actually a different one that I was, I was struck by. Buddhism as a philosophy starts with something known as the Four Noble Truths. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to simplify this a lot, so I mean no disrespect to anyone who might hear this who happens to be Buddhist, but I think this is really the gist of the, the Four Noble Truths. The first one is life is suffering. Life always involves suffering. Okay, fair enough. I'm not going to argue with that one. Um, two, suffering is caused by the fact that we desire things that we cannot have. Yeah, makes sense, right? Point number three, if you want to eliminate suffering, you have to stop desiring things that you don't have. And then noble truth four is there's a, a whole path of meditation and practices that can help you to stop desiring things that you, you don't have. Now there's a logic to that system that's undeniable. And I do think there's some, some wisdom there. You know, if I'm always desiring things that I don't have, like if I say, I'll never be happy until I have a seven-figure salary, well, yeah, I'm always going to be miserable. I need to learn to how to be content with, with what I have, right? So there is some wisdom there. But there's also something about that that doesn't seem right to me, because it's kind of like saying to a drowning man who's yelling for help, here is my help for you. Stop wanting not to drown. <laughs> and what I want us to see this morning is that Christianity is so different from that, okay? Because Christianity doesn't say, stop wanting not to, to drown. Christianity says, there's someone who's able to throw you a rope. Because Jesus doesn't tell us, stop desiring. Jesus says instead, you need to find your heart's desire fulfilled through me. You know, Christianity says we are made to desire love and purpose and meaning and beauty and wisdom and eternal life. We're made to want those things. Don't try to deny it. Don't try to suppress it. Instead, realize that those desires are ultimately a reflection of your desire for God and find the fulfillment of your desires through him. You know, God doesn't want us to think that there isn't bread out there that can satisfy. What he wants is for us to realize that what satisfies is him. And I think that's such, a, such good news that God is not opposed to our joy or even our desire. What he's against is us looking for the satisfaction of our desires in the wrong places. You know, he doesn't want us going after moldy bread. He wants us to experience bread from heaven. He wants to feed our souls, and he wants to provide in abundance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that 
You have created us with desire, and you have created us with a way for our desires to be satisfied. Lord, I pray that each one of us would really experience you as uh, the bread from heaven. God, I pray that as we uh, get to know Jesus better, as we learn more about uh, the wisdom that you offer and the sacrifice that you gave on our, on your, on our behalf, uh, about the love that you have for us, Lord, I, I pray that we would find the deepest longings of our hearts being met. And uh, Father, I, I pray that you would help us to be faithful with the, the uh, offerings that we have to give. Uh, Lord, we pray that whatever offerings we make, you would multiply them. Lord, that you would uh, use them to expand your kingdom in ways that just rock our expectations, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.